All right, everyone. Good evening. Go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in the first nine verses of the chapter tonight. As you turn in there, let me introduce myself for any of you that are new. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm the worship and college pastor here at Quorum Deo. And if you guys need anything at all while you're here, if you have any questions, and this goes to everyone, if you have any questions, if you need any prayer, I'm up here right after the message. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you, answer any questions you might have, and uh, certainly get connected to our group in any way. If you want to get connected to our group in any other way, we have lots of things going on throughout the week and uh, different events. And so just find anybody wearing the name tags that typically means they have some kind of serving role in our ministry as a leader. Uh, they'd ha be happy to get you connected as well. All right, last thing before we get into the passage for tonight, just want to say if you stuck around last week for our after hours where we spent some time learning how to study the Bible, I just want to say thank you. Loved having you guys there. I pray that it was fruitful for you. Um, if you didn't stick around and you want to catch some of the stuff that we taught, um, we do have some leftover uh, workshop sheets that explain some of the different ways to study the Bible. So if you're interested in that, come up to me afterwards and I can get a copy of those things in your hands as well. All right. So just a, a quick reminder there. Okay. I think that was enough time for everyone to get into the book of Philippians. Let's look at it together. All right. Chapter four, Philippians, we're continuing in our series uh, Philippians written by the Apostle Paul, and we're getting near the end. This is the last little bit of Philippians. We've got this message here, then we've got our Thanksgiving party, we've got Thanksgiving week itself, which we're off, and then we're wrapping up Philippians before we hit a couple messages related to Christmas. So really just this message and one more, and uh, we're picking up right at the beginning of the chapter. So let's start there. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so as we get to the end of Paul's letter... We often see him do something. Like most of the epistles we read that Paul has written, he has this, advice, this, this moment, this pattern that he takes where he just starts like fastballing, spitting out godly advice, right? Just like gospel upchuck of just stuff that we should be hearing and things that he wants to say. And, and this is no different. It's like one thing after another. Paul has these things that he wants to get out before he's done writing, right? We know, he knows he's nearing the end and it's like these final 
issues that he wants to address or final things that he wants people to remember. And in this passage, and typically in his letters, this comes in the form of what we call exhortations. Right? Exhortations. If you don't know what that means, let me explain it to you. So to exhort is to strongly urge, to strongly push or persuade someone towards something. And when you exhort somebody, it comes in the form of an exhortation. Right? An exhortation is what you give in order to urge somebody to do something. It's the command that you give, the thing that you speak. For example, there was a lot of Iowans, for those of you who live on the Iowa side, there's a lot of Iowans this week that were exhorted to go vote. This week there was, there was voting going on in this city. And they were asked, please go vote. Please get out to the polls. Please cast a ballot. They were being urged and persuaded to do their citizenly duty. Many of you, I know, after talking to you, have been exhorted the last week or two to register for classes and to register for classes on time and to make sure you do that in order to get the classes that you need, in order to graduate on time, in order to set them all up in the proper way. You have been urged to do something for your benefit. These are the types of exhortations that we see in our culture today. But the place that true exhortation happens, the place that ultimate and life-changing exhortation happens is in the pulpit. It is through the preached word of God. And in Paul's case, it's through the written word of God through the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. And Paul here, he has a lot of exhortations to give them. He's already given quite a few, but he's not done. And now he just, it's like lightning round for him. And so, with that in mind, we're just going to cover the exhortations that we see in this passage. We're going to go through them. It might seem a little disconnected in the sense of like, wow, how does point one relate to point four? Well, it only sort of does because Paul is trying to give these things to them. And so I'm calling this message tonight. You ready for it? This is a long one. Four exhortations, a truth, and a promise. I know, super original. It sounds like the beginning to a joke. Right? Four exhortations, a truth, and a promise. Walk into a bar and fill in the blank there. I, I told the leaders I probably shouldn't say that, but I, went, I did anyway. So there it is. Pastor Rob, I hope you don't listen to this. <laughs> so that's the outline for tonight. We're walking through four main exhortations that we see in this passage. But we're not just doing that. We're going to be resting in and understanding the truth that we find in here. And then we're going to end by resting in and understanding a promise that we can rely on. So let's kick it off with the first exhortation. The first one that we see, exhortation one, is seek unity. Exhortation one, seek unity. Let me show you where I get this. Let's look back at verse one together. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So he starts off with this therefore, meaning in light of all the things that I've just said. And we covered these last week in my little scribble message, right, where I wrote on my iPad and we were circling all the connections we saw. Like, we know that he means, therefore, in light of the resurrection from the dead, in, in light of what we have to look for, in light of owning our salvation, all those things we covered last week. Like, in light of those things, we are to stand firm. And then... He goes on to give this exhortation that relates to what it looks like to stand firm in Christ. Living well for Christ. Being a good and godly disciple for Christ. And the first thing he gives on the docket of how to stand firm and in relation to standing firm is unity. Verse 2 is where it really comes in. 
I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, yes, I did look up how to say those, to agree in the Lord. Agree here means to have unity. But even, it's, it's even more than that. See, the word agree here doesn't just mean don't argue. The word agree here doesn't just mean get along. Like this is not the same word that like your parents have said to you or yelled at you and either you're fighting with the sibling or you're getting in trouble with your friends. And like this is not what your parents say when they're like, can't you just get along? How many of you have heard that at some point in your life? You know what I'm talking about. This is not that. This is not that kind of unity. Okay, this isn't just a quietness and a peaceableness. This word here means have the same mind. Have the same mind. We've seen it several times already in the book of Philippians. I'll read a few to you. Philippians 2.2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Philippians 2.5, he tells us to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So have the mindset of Jesus Christ. Last week, Philippians 3.19, we're talking about those that don't walk with Christ, right? And it says their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame. And it says that their minds are set on earthly things. This is the same Greek word. To have the same mind is what unity is here. So what Paul is saying is that unity isn't just getting along with someone. It's not just being cordial. It's not just playing nice. It's not just acting like it's cool. And it's certainly not just being in the same room and happening not to interact with one another. And you guys know what I'm talking about. It happens everywhere you go. It's happening in this room right now, I'm sure, where you have those people that like, well, we both come to college ministry, but we're just sort of going to talk even to the same people at different times, or maybe we'll just be on different sides of the room, and we have unity because we're able to be in the same room together. That's not unity, okay? That's being cordial. That's being polite. People that hate each other can be polite and cordial to one another. That's not what this kind of unity is. Rather, it's the same mind, and it's the same mind of Jesus. Unity is striving towards Christ together. It's fighting to think the same things in the same way, especially viewing the way that we are at odds with one another in the light of Christ. So if you're at odds with another person, the whole idea of having the same mind is not only to be unified and agreeing in Christ, it's to be able to agree on the situation and how Christ views the situation. And you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You'll be at times where like he said this and she said this and you know one truth is here and one truth is there. The idea is to come to a point and understand how does Jesus see the situation? Who has sinned? Who has done the wrong? Who needs to reconcile? And how can you make that happen? Like that's the whole concept of having the same mind of Christ while being with one another. And we see it here because Paul is encouraging two women to set aside what they're disagreeing on. We don't know what they're disagreeing on, but we know it's a big enough deal for, call, for Paul to call them out in front of the whole church. Can you guys imagine being those two ladies in the reading? Like the congregation gets together, like... You know, it's opened up. All right, we're going we're gonna to read from Paul, the guy who planted our church. You guys ready? All right, here we go. And it just goes through. And like, can you imagine meeting those two ladies and just getting through like most of the letter? Like, yeah, this is really good. And then you just get called out by Paul, at, like in front of everybody. And then on top of that, not only are you called out by Paul, but then the people around you are told to help you in it. 
right? And so everyone knows your business all of a sudden. So clearly something was going on and Paul thought that it was worth mentioning. So he wanted them to have unity and we too should have unity. And there's two ways that we really seek unity. The first way is through agreement. The first way we seek unity is through agreement. And I've already covered that one, verses one and two, right? Those two women together striving for the same mind of Christ, seeing their situation through Christ and reconciling to the best of their ability through Christ. That's the first way. But the second way that we see we should seek unity is through assistance. Through assistance. Now, this is the one that's going to hit you a little hard, some of you, because you don't like other people knowing your business. You don't like other people getting in on everything. But you see, Paul acknowledges here that sometimes people aren't able to get through things on their own. People aren't able to come to terms. They aren't able to settle disagreements and restore unity on their own. And so Paul here, he pleads with the church or maybe a specific person. We're not sure. But he pleads with the church to help these women because these women have worked with him in the gospel. You see it there in verse 3, right? He says, I ask you also, true companion. True companion could be the church. He could be talking about it. That's what I think. I think he's talking about the church. But true companion could actually be the word sysgos, which could be a name too. So either it's a very particular person or it's the church. I lean towards the church based on everything else in this context. But either way, he's saying this, this true companion needs to assist and help these women come to agreement and come to unity. So we need to come to a point and understand in our lives that when unity isn't happening, when you are at odds and it has yet to be reconciled, that maybe you need to bring some people into it. Maybe you need to bring a C group leader into it. Maybe you need to get some mutual, let me listen here, mutual and unbiased godly friends to help you in the situation, right? I mean, somebody that doesn't stand to gain anything about if one of you wins or the other wins or whatever, right? Unbiased friends, or maybe, just maybe, you should just get a pastor involved. You know, believe it or not, we're not policemen. We don't cast right and wrong. We're literally here to serve you and to help you. And so maybe you just need to get a pastor involved who's willing to just sit and listen, and the thing that the pastor stands against, the thing I stand against from you guys being unified is that you're unified. The thing I stand against is that the ministry loves Jesus and serves Jesus better. So I'm going to seek that. So maybe you need to get someone involved. Maybe you need to seek assistance. But either way, we need to come to a point where we understand that it might come to needing that assistance. So you see a godly Christian and we're talking about Christians that stand firm here, right? That's, that's the whole concept. A Christian that stands firm is a Christian that struggles to make sure they are in unity. A Christian that stands firm is a Christian that wants help in being unified. And certainly, if it comes on their door and they don't want the help, they're the type of Christian that's humble enough to receive it when the help comes knocking on their door. And I know some of you, I'm your pastor. I know some of you are thinking right now about the times that I have approached you personally about having unity. Some of you are remembering that right now about a discussion we had on making sure that you seek 
unity. And, and I know some of you, even right now, are thinking about the time at the most recent 3C retreat where I just called it out to everyone, said, like, we need to all seek unity together. And that's good because I want you to see those things. I want you to see that it is a biblical standard to expect that a Christian wants unity. It is a biblical standard that if you are a Christian, you want to be unified with the body of Christ. Those go hand in hand. I'm not going to be afraid to ask you to seek unity. I'm going to push for it day in and day out because the power of the gospel is not seen in two people that get along just by seeing that they have common interests. The power of the gospel is not people who hang out because they're all part of the same team or sport or club or have the same interests. The power of the gospel is when two people hang out that shouldn't be hanging out for any other reason than the fact that they love Jesus Christ and they are here for him and serving him. That's what makes the gospel so powerful. That's what makes people look upon people who are part of the church and think, those, those guys, they have something because it makes no sense why they're hanging out. Besides the fact that Jesus is bringing them together. Besides the fact that something is going on in their lives that's uniting them. Like, that's what I want for you. And that's what a mature Christian should want. And guys, there is nothing, there's almost nothing more revealing about a Christian's maturity than their ability to be unified with other believers. There's almost nothing more revealing about a Christian's immaturity than how they treat their fellow believers and how unified they are. What I'm saying is that to the extent that someone is isolating themselves and pushing themselves away from unity, to the extent in which we run to avoid problems in the community, to the extent in which we don't want to strive for agreement, is to the extent that we are immature in that area of our discipleship. You don't need to look any further than this text to see what I'm talking about, but let me give you a, a real-world example. I got the opportunity on Monday to spend some time with my sister and my nieces and nephews. Um, they were in town from Hawaii for some medical leave things, and so they were over at my house on Monday. Monday's my day off, so it was just me and the nephews and nieces and my sister pretty much all day. And, you know, as young kids do at some point, they want to play video games on the TV. So I'm like, cool, I can be the cool uncle and play some Smash Bros with my nephews and nieces. You know, they're like five or six years old. So here I'm thinking, I'm going to own them, right? Like, I'm going to make them see that their uncle is cool. And so we start playing, right? And it's been a while since I've played Smash Brothers against anybody but my own kids. And my own kids are too afraid to be mad at me, right? So um, I start playing. And at some point, my sister and I, you know, she's like almost 30. Um, we just own them, right? Just, just annihilate them, right? And we're having fun at first, and the kids are enjoying it because we're, you know, doing fun things. And then at some point, we hit the line, right? We cross the line, and I falcon punch my little nephew right off the, right off the you know. And what does he do? Very gently, which I appreciate, very gently sets down the switch controller, which is good. That's a win. But then proceeds to storm off, Right? And he's screaming and he's crying. I never win. Why can't I just win? And then by the time he gets into my hallway, he's crawling because he's crying, right? And he's throwing this fit. My sister has to go coddle him and make sure that he's okay and try to convince him to come back. And the reason I bring up this story is because what happens when a toddler doesn't get their way? What happens when a toddler experiences something uncomfortable? Experiences something they don't like. Experiences something that they disagree with. They take their ball and they go home. 
They separate themselves, they isolate themselves, and if they can, they try to bring others with them. They try to win others onto their side. That's why you see them throwing fits in the the aisle of the grocery store, right? Because they want other people to sympathize and be with them and not be in unity, but to be in disunity. And I want to ask, do you see? I mean, that part is pretty easy to see, just how childish that is, right? So do you see when something that makes you uncomfortable at church or something that makes you uncomfortable in a group of Christian friends, something that irritates you, something that's happening in the group that you don't like, do you see how avoiding unity, breaking unity, causing others to be disunified, do you see how that makes you no better than a toddler who's throwing a fit and just trying to seek what you can get out of it? And guys, I love you. I love you deeply. You know I do. I've dedicated a lot of my life to ministering to you. I love you, but I love you enough to tell you, don't be that person. Don't be a Christian that says they're a Christian and then seeks to tear apart the body of Christ. Don't be someone who wants to be mature and is, un- and, and is afraid to step into maturity by going through the hard things of living in community with one another. Like, Paul wants this church to stay together, and he finds it so important that as he's finishing his letter to the Philippians, it's worth bringing up a situation between two women because the sake of unity is crucial to the cause of Christ in this church. And the sake of unity in this ministry and in this church is so important. So seek unity, seek it through agreement, seek it through assistance. Let's move on, all right? These ones get happier, I promise. These ones, these ones get happier pretty quickly, actually, because exhortation number two is choose joy. Exhortation number two is choose joy. Look back at the passage with me, verses four and five. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So I've preached on joy Um, a lot in my time as a pastor, and for a good reason, because joy is essential to the life of a Christian. Joy that transcends all circumstances, joy that persists despite hardships, joy that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and given to us by the Holy Spirit. And if you were around this past Sunday at our church, I actually preached like a whole section of my sermon on joy. I gave six truths that inspired joy. And honestly, um, because of the things I would love to cover tonight, I'm just going to encourage you to head on to Facebook or our website and just watch like the last 15 minutes of that message. Because I'm, I'm going to leave all that there. Because I could preach all that right now and it would be relevant when it comes to talking on joy. But I'd rather get through some other things tonight. So I'm going to trust that you're just going to go ahead and do that. I'm not going to repeat those things tonight, but I am going to introduce something new that Paul does when it comes to talking about joy. And that's this. It's that joy should be felt by others. Like your joy in the Lord should be felt by other people. It should be seen, expressed, and felt by those around you. You should have a joy that's felt by them. Because you see in the same breath that Paul not only tells them to have joy, he's telling them to choose joy, right? They're in disunity. He wants that to get better. And he's telling them rejoice. Like he's telling them to choose joy. And in that same breath, He utters this thing about reasonableness and how it should be seen by others. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be seen. So let's let's focus on the word reasonableness for a minute. 
Like if you have a different translation, or if you have the ESV, you might see this little footnote there. It tells you that this word could also be translated as gentleness. So why, why did the translators choose reasonableness if gentleness could be a word used in the Greek there? It's because the translators are trying to accurately portray the true nature uh, and the intent of the, of the word here. Right? The, the meaning behind the meaning. It's like when we say the word love. We could mean different things. And so they're trying to communicate the exact type of gentleness. And, and because what they're trying to portray is that joy doesn't just make you gentle towards others, but it makes your response to others well-natured, full of grace, gentle, kind, and loving. Like that's, that's what they're trying to communicate is that your joy should present to others around you a good-naturedness towards them. If you have the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible Translation, I love the word that it chose. It says, let your graciousness be shown to others. Let your graciousness be shown to others. So rejoice in the Lord and let your graciousness be felt. So what I want to say about joy tonight, on top of all the other things I preached this week about it, is you will know you will know that you have truly chosen to be joyful when your interactions to others are seen as full of grace, full of grace and gentleness and reasonableness towards them. You want to find out if you truly are choosing joy? Start seeing how you're treating the people around you. In short, it's not snappy. Joy does not lead to snappiness. Joy does not lead to wallowing like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, all right? Joy does not lead to being short and curt with somebody. If you're truly choosing joy in life, those are not the things people around you are, are experiencing. What they're experiencing around you is graciousness, reasonableness in situations towards them. So not only should those around you feel, you know, joy if you're joyful, but they should feel that you're full of grace. That's all I'm going to say, seriously. You want to hear more on joy? You want to hear about how you can have joy? Head back to that message. Um, or you can find it, I think, on our college YouTube as well. But either way, I suggest that you do that because I want to move on. Let's keep on going. Let's pick it up in verses 5 through 7. So verses 5 through 7, the end of verse 5 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul starts off this exhortation, which we'll get to in a minute, right? We're going to get to that exhortation. Don't worry. I didn't, I didn't mess up. He starts off this exhortation with the truth. And yes, this is the truth that's in the title. And that truth is the Lord is at hand. So we've gone through two exhortations and then a truth. The Lord is at hand. It's a simple truth. But what Paul is about to say, the exhortation he's about to give, it rests upon this truth. And so let's understand this truth as much as we can. When Paul says the Lord is at hand, he is reminding the Philippians that Jesus Christ is returning, that Jesus is near, and that he's never been more near than he is at that moment. I heard this quote a few weeks ago. I loved it. It says, you are never closer to eternity and Christ's return than you are right now. You are never closer to eternity and Christ's return than you are right now, which means every second, every minute of your life brings you closer and closer to the long-awaited return of your Savior, the long-awaited return 
of the one who gives you life, the one who gives you life, the one who brings you joy, and the one who gives you hope. Like every moment that passes brings you a moment closer than you've ever been to Christ. Like the implication here is that that every minute you breathe, every minute you breathe, doesn't matter if it's full of pain and hardship or, or, or full of joy and hope, every breath that you take is still the closest breath you have ever been to Jesus Christ. Like I want you to think of it this way, like before I say this, how many of you like roller coasters? All right, so a lot of you resonate with this maybe. Okay, pretend you like roller coasters for a minute, okay, if you don't. Think of it like this. One of the best parts of the roller coaster, right, is most of them, they're, they're, they're sending you up the first, like, ascension, right? And, and like, it's clicking, right? Click, 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 click. You know what I'm talking about? And, and you're sort of waiting for the moment for the ride to actually start. Like, it's about there. You're almost there. You can see it. You know it's coming. You're told it's coming. You've seen other people go through it. And you're about to get to the top and for the drop. And in that moment, Some of you are nervous. Some of you are getting a little sick. Some of you are short of breath. Some of you are super excited. But no matter what you're feeling and no matter what you're going through, that moment's coming. And every second that passes, you're closer to it than you were a second ago. Right? No matter what you're going through, that moment is coming. And you've never been closer to it than you are in that second. That's what it's like for Jesus Christ. Like right now, we are closer to Jesus now than we were 10 seconds ago. And 10 seconds from now, we'll be closer to him then than we are right now. And that's the truth that we're resting in. That's the truth that inspires everything that Paul is saying is that Jesus is coming. Let that fill you with joy. Let that be a reason you seek unity. It's like he he caps off this thought of, of joy, but then he goes on to more. He's not just like, Talking about this, to, to talk about joy, he's talking about this for this next thing, and that's the exhortation. And that is exhortation number three, to find peace. Exhortation number three, to find peace. So we're still looking at verses six to seven. And I, I want to note something, right? For here in verse six, he says, do not be anxious about anything. I want to note as we start talking about this and as we're, we're wrapping up soon, I'm not talking about a medical disorder that's related to anything you've gone through, I, I'm, things that go hand in hand with this. I'm not talking about physical trauma that leads to an actual thing that, that happens with your body. I'm talking about not anxiety and the disorder. I'm talking about anxiousness, okay? Anxiousness. I'm talking about the worrying and fretting of what is to come and what is happening to you. The scripture here is talking about the ways that we elevate our circumstances and diminish our God. That's anxiousness. To elevate the circumstances around us in a way that we lose sight of the God that is with us. That's what I mean when I say anxiousness. And clearly, the Philippians were dealing with some kind of anxiousness. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't see a reason to bring it up, right? So they're dealing with anxiousness. And to that, I know a lot of you are like, yeah, me too, bro. I'm facing that right now. So, and to that, I say, good, listen up. Because Paul has something to say about if you're one who deals with anxiousness, all right? He has a a couple things, actually. Paul wants you to find peace. He wants you to find peace And he gives how you can do it. He says, find peace by prayer and supplication. 
Prayer and supplication. So if you're wondering what supplication means, it just means petitioning. So Paul is saying, don't be anxious, but rather pray to God and petition to God. Speak to him and literally ask him for things. That, that's a whole concept. Pray, speak to God, petition, ask him for things. And I know that for some of you, you're like, that doesn't seem like enough, man. Like, I'm anxious and just praying doesn't really seem to cover it. Just asking God for help doesn't really seem to cover it. And I get you and Paul gets you because he qualifies how we're supposed to pray. He qualifies how we're supposed to ask God for things. And he says that we are supposed to do it with what? With thankfulness. See, the quality of our prayers needs to be with thankfulness. The quality of us asking the Lord for things needs to be with thankfulness. Meaning your prayers and your fight against anxiousness need to be prayers of just giving thanks to the Lord first and foremost. And your petitions and your fight against anxiousness just need to be petitions filled with thankfulness. How do you do that? What does it look like? Well, it starts with knowing things you can be thankful for. You can't be thankful for things that you haven't acknowledged. You can't be thankful for things that you haven't realized. So it starts by maybe creating a list of the things you have to be thankful for. Start with the basics. Um, still breathing? Good. Check. Still able to talk? Love that. Get deeper. Get bigger. Fill your mind with thankfulness to the Lord. And so you're like, all right, I can pray with thankfulness. How do you ask God for things with thankfulness? Like, how does that one work? How do you petition with thankfulness? Well, by acknowledging the things that he's already given you and then by asking him humbly if he would be willing to give you more. Lord, I thank you so much that you've allowed me to get this schooling. I thank you so much that you've given me the ability to have this undergraduate degree. And Lord, if you would so grant it, I humbly ask that you would allow me to get my master's. I humbly ask that you would allow me to move forward in this. You've given me so much, and I'm just asking for a little bit more if you would so grant it to be in your will, God. Like, that's how you ask for things while being thankful and being humble. So get, get started, right? But that's not the very end. What I love right here is the promise that we see, and that's the hint, the promise to come, right? It's not up there yet, but look here at the very last part of this verse. It says that the God of peace, right? Verse 7, peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your, and what does it say it's going to guard? Your heart and your mind. So when anxiousness comes knocking on your door, what does it attack? It attacks your heart and it attacks your mind, meaning it attacks your emotions because you feel things that you shouldn't, right? It, you like, it steals your joy. It steals your happiness. It steals your sense of security. All these things that are felt and it doesn't only just attack that heart and emotion. It attacks your mind because it causes you to think things that you shouldn't think. It causes you to assume things that you shouldn't assume. It causes you to think about other people the way that you shouldn't think about them. That's what anxiousness does. And the promise here is that if you ask with thankfulness, if you pray with thankfulness, the promise here is that the peace of God will protect your heart, will guard your heart, and will guard your mind. Will guard your heart and guard your mind. So more on that in just a little bit. That's exhortation three. Last but not least, exhortation four. Stay focused. 
Stay focused. Verses 8 and 9. I'm not going to cover this one too much because pretty much the entire book of Philippians has been me pushing these things towards you guys. But let's get into those verses just so we can say not only that we've read them, but that we've left them here as a, as a means to meditate on, right? So verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, here's the line. Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. Paul has two things that he's really trying to get across here. If you're going to stay focused, you're going to think and you're going to practice. You're going to think and you're going to practice. So what are you thinking about? Well, he says you're going to think about what's true. You're going to think about what's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. And you know the beautiful thing about this passage and about preaching this passage is that if you're a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit in you, those are the things God wants you to think about. Those are the things that the Holy Spirit is constantly directing you towards. The things that are honorable, that are commendable, the things that are true, the things that are pure, the things that are lovely, the things that are praiseworthy. Like the Holy Spirit, his whole role is to direct you towards the things of God because the things of God are honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And the works of God and everything God does are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely. You're going to have this memorized by the time I'm done, right? But these are the things the Spirit directs you towards. So I'm going to leave that there because I know that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can't help but feel the pull to think about those things. But I'm going to end it with that second part, and that is to practice. To practice them. He says it at the very end, practice, right? Follow after me. Practice these things. Very end. So the first part is staying focused, but it's to practice, which essentially means to do them. And we know what practice is. Practice is the way you go about things, or it's trying at things, failing, and trying again. Those are the two definitions we have of practice. They sort of go hand in hand, actually. And we know that's what we need to do. We need to practice what is true. And if we fail, we try it again. We need to practice what is commendable, what is pure, what is holy. And I wanted to end tonight by showing you that this isn't the only place we see it and by driving home the promise that we have one last time. So, talking about not only seeing things, staying focused by seeing them and practicing them, you guys might be familiar with James 1.25. It's going to be on the screen. James 1.25 says, But the one, that's a person, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, meaning those that See the law, look at the word of God, right? And choose to do it, being no hearer, but a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Look at that. Look at that verse. We'll keep it on the screen. Now look at the, look at the last verse here in Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things. It's almost exactly the same. Those that have looked into the perfect law and actually do it, Well, what? When Philippians says, and the God of peace will be with you, James says he will be blessed in his doing. Do you see the parallel? If you see the things of God and you practice the things of God, 
the promise, the promise that's the last thing that we're focusing on tonight as we wrap up here, the promise is that the God of peace will be with you. That's the blessing you experience. The God of peace will be with you. That's a lot. I mean, I went all over the place tonight, right? And this, this is what Paul's doing. He's wrapping up and he just wants to say as many things as he possibly can to people that he loves and he spent time with. That's what I've wanted to say to you tonight. And I, I want to ask you that if one of these things has stood out to you, if one of these things is stirring in your heart is something you need to repent of, something you need to focus on, something you need to learn more about, take a moment and commit to it now. I'm going to give you a minute and a half to just sit and reflect before I pray and just commit right now to one of these things. Commit right now to one of these exhortations to follow through and to be not just a hearer, but to be a doer, to actually practice these. Take a minute now, a minute and a half, and I'll pray. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged to follow these exhortations. Lord, I know that certain parts of the message were for certain people tonight. I know that someone just needed to hear a promise tonight. I know that somebody needed to better understand your return, Jesus, and how that impacts them. I know there's some that need to choose joy, some that need to seek unity. Some that need to be doers instead of hearers. I thank you for a message that speaks so broadly and yet has so much more to it that I couldn't possibly cover. So I ask, Lord, that you would do as you always do. Be found faithful to minister to your people way better than I ever could. And Lord, I certainly pray that anything that I have said that has been of my opinion, Anything that I have said that has not been of you, Lord, may you just cast it away out of the minds of these people here and that your word would ring for eternity, have eternal impact. Lord, I submit myself to your word and we submit ourselves to your word in a way that allows us to see what you desire and have for us and not what we might want, certainly what I may want for them. Lord, you are so good to us. Help us remember those things. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.